Hello, and welcome to another episode of Adventures in .NET. I'm Sean Kleber, your host, and with me today is Y. Lou. Hey, Y. How you doing today? Hey, I'm not too bad. It's been a good day. We got a little bit of sunshine, so not too cold, no snow. So I'm good. Again. <laughs> All right. Mm-hmm. Our special guest today is Oren Amy. Hey, Oren, how you doing? I'm doing well, well, thank you. Yeah, thanks. So I think we've got you on the show to talk a little bit about making things run fast and also about RavenDB. I think you're involved a little bit with RavenDB. Uh, yes, just a little <laughs> bit. So uh, kind of give us a little bit of, of your background and, and how you got into development and what you do. I recently had to update my bio and put 20 years experience. I was very depressed about that. I always so, hate it when that first digit changes. Yep. Yeah. I, I remember anyway, going from so, 29 to 30 years old and it's like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so I was a developer for a while and then become a consultant. And I was dealing mostly with databases and ORM for a very long time. At some point, I basically did almost entirely performance consulting, which is funny because the kind of performance stuff that we're going to talk about in the show and the kind of performance that I'm to- I'm talking about is completely separate. But uh, I would go to a company and tell them, okay, you're abusing your database to the point where a single page load would make the CPU spike horribly, which it should never do that. Here's a quick example. What do you expect is a good average for the number of queries that it takes to generate a single page for an enterprise application? I guess it depends on the technology, I guess, right? Or, I don't know. Like, yeah, uh, well, but let, let's, let's assume, assume yeah. that you're using a relational database. I like to keep it down to like maybe five. Hmm. <laughs> five is good. The average is over 60. Oh, wow. I would routinely get called when the number would exceed 300. My worst was 17,000. 17,000. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. 17,000, yes. It's, That's an O to the N to the Nth, whatever you want to call it. Is that like an N plus one problem or something like that? That, that made that occur? I can't, I can't imagine no. loading a page up and having that oh, many. That, that, oh, that's very easy. Try to imagine that you have a really, really complex page. And for each and every UI component in the page, you have to run a security scan that require. 500 queries. Yeah. Time that by the number of UI elements in the D, and you just die. And yes, mm. that was select N plus one. That was uh, just horrible things all around. And I used to go to company after company and make some pretty good living doing that. But it was incredibly frustrating seeing people hit the same issues over and over again. At some point, I got tired of that and I said, I, I, I had this dream that I want to stop explaining to people why they should use should not use Select plus one or have to put in place some complex caching because the loading of a single uh, entity causes us to have to reach to 50 tables. And I sat down and I doodled what a database would look like that could do all of that for me. Unfortunately, I have an issue where I do that and it, and it doesn't stay this way. And it came this really annoying urge. And at some point I said, okay, let's do some design for that. And that would get it off my head because, you know, I have actual work to do. After a while, that helped, but it was still keeping me up at night. I'm talking literally, by the way. 
I remember one time I got up at 2 a.m. and I'm looking at the ceiling and I see different components sliding across the sliding across the ceiling as they fit together. And says, oh, now I know how querying should work in my non-existent database that only exists in my head. And at some point I said, okay, it's driving me to destruction. I'm going to spend a couple of weekends just working on that. Three months later, I realized that I've been 16, 14 hours a day of coding on this thing, doing two, three hours of work for, you know, paying customers and not really sleeping. I decided at that point, okay, this this goes out. I don't have a choice in that, that I do have a choice in how it goes out and created a revenue project that has been over a decade ago. We had been through four major uh, releases so far with the fifth coming in the next couple of months. And the most important one of them was the one that we had two years ago where we basically said, okay, we stretch, we stretch the architecture and the design of the system as much as possible. We cannot go with the foundation that we have right now. We have to start from scratch. Uh, that was in 2015. It took us little over two years to finish that process and migrate to .NET Core to a completely new architecture. And at the start of the this process, what I basically said, I, I went to my team and told them, okay, I want to be 10 times faster across the board. Anything, every single feature you have, in order to get into the next version, it has to be 10 times faster than the previous one. They looked at me funny. They looked at me really funny. But in the end, we actually got a lot better than that. The 3.5 version of RevenDB could max out on pretty good hardware at about 50K requests a second. On the same hardware, the current version maxes out at 1.35 million requests a second. Wow. Yeah. At some point, uh, when I went to customers, I used to bring a Raspberry Pi and we just put, put uh, uh, plug this into the network and tell them, okay, this is now my server. Now let's, here is some benchmarking numbers. Let's run it. Let's see how it's going. And I would tell them, okay, let's, let's take your application. Can you give me your, your stats for number of queries, number of loads, those sort of things? I would get them and then I would run, okay, let's try to see what kind of stress I can handle. And we're talking Raspberry Pi 3, four cores of one gigahertz and four gigabytes of memory. And on that thing, I can do 13,000 reads per second and just over 1,000 writes per second, which is, it's typically enough for the 85 percentile. So 85, 95 of the applications are going to use significantly less, less significantly less load than that. So is that the, the main value proposition of RavenDB? So actually, can you give me a little bit of an intro of what RavenDB actually is first? <laughs> yeah, so performance was never the issue. So let's start from, from the beginning. Uh, when I built RavenDB, the things that drove me crazy was that the, in order to actually be able to build good application, you had to struggle so much with the database, be it uh, having to define schema up front, which is like pouring concrete on the first day of the project before you know anything about the project. It's about having a complex data structures that you have to split into tiny, teeny tables all over the place. 
It's about being a, a force to do a lot of pre-planning in order to understand what's going on in the end. For example, I need to know what my query is going to be like so I can define the appropriate index. And I also have to make choices. Do I want writes to be fast so I define more indexes or do I want writes to be fast so I define less indexes and all bunch of other stuff like that. RavenDB is a document database. It's stored the data as JSON. And right here, you solve a lot of problems. The modeling concerns are now much simpler because you can take a complex object graph and treat it as a single entity, a single document that gets stored. That means that if you're following domain-driven design, a document is a root entity. And suddenly, all of your modeling become almost trivial. Okay, I have an order. It has order line, discounts, payments, whatever. All of that is a single unit. A lot of the complexity that you have to deal with relation database, in this case, for example, cost grain locking just goes away. That don't exist. The, if you consider, again, I'm using the older entity example, which is a good one. Try to imagine how many queries does it take to load a, a single order for the user in a reasonably complex system. You have the line numbers, the, the run items, you have the discounts, you have the payments, you have offers and sales uh, that, uh, that have been applied, loyalty points, and a whole bunch of other things that you need to keep track of them. And that means that efficiently loading an order from the database is a task. Yeah, you get a load from a lot of different tables and things like that. Yeah, and that means that you have to... Now, okay, give me the order header, give me the order with the lines, give me the orders with all of the information so I can mm-hmm. show it to the user, all sorts of stuff like that. With RevenB, all of that is a document, and all of those problems just went away. Now, the downside at the time of NoSQL databases was lack of transactions and a really, really horrible API deployment setup. I came from the Microsoft world. I expect things to be convenient. Because if it's not convenient, why am, I, why am I hitting my wall in the... Why am I hitting my head on the wall all the time? So RevenDB from the get-go was transactional database. It could handle multi-master replication between uh, various nodes, transparent uh, replication, all sorts of stuff that you had to fight over in order to get there. I remember having client where they said, oh, we want you to, we want to have high availability and we got a, a DBA to set up things properly. They say, okay, no worries. We will start the project. We'll use RevenDB right now until the, uh, the DBA is finishing setting up high availability and automatic failover for the uh, SQL server that you're using. And we'll go from there. I was there, I think, for two weeks. And by the time I uh, flew back home, they haven't finished setting up SQL Server availability features properly. So in some cases, you would disconnect the network and it wouldn't do the failover or something like that. And with RevenDB, it was, okay, set up one node, set up two nodes, take two minutes for each, tell them about each other, and you're done. And then you have automatically failover between them. Other things, because I was very involved with ORMs, the client API is easy. It's uh, the same concept of entity framework of uh, an Hibernate. You have a, a session, you work with your entities, they get transparently serialized, serialized to the database, you have transactions, a uh, link, which is, it, it's funny, uh, it took me three months to write the first version of RevenDB, and it took me another three months to write the link provider. It's 
significantly more complex than anything else, which is ridiculous. Mm. As a consumer, I love Link. As a, someone who has to, prov- to create a Link provider, that's the worst thing ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So the whole point of revenue from the get-go was uh, reducing time to market, being able to reduce the need for users to do a lot of really complex stuff upfront. Mm-hmm. One of the features that we got very early on was something called automatic indexes. You make a query to RevenDB. RevenDB is going to consider this query, send it to the query optimizer, and then select the appropriate index and execution method, which is so far so good. That's the normal way it works. What happens if you don't have an appropriate index for that? At this point, something really, really interesting happens. In a relational database, you're going to have a table scan. The problem with the table scan is that it's going to work. Yeah, it will scan every document. Yeah, yeah. We start seeing why is it a problem that it's working? Because it's going to work, but it's going to consume quite a lot of resources. Mm. When you're developing the application, you're running on your own machine. You have one user. You have typically a small amount of data, so you don't see the cost behind the table scan. When you go to production, suddenly you have many users, lots of data, and the cost of the table scan become quickly apparent. Not quickly enough. It typically happens between 2 to 3 a.m. I don't know why. But the issue then is that uh, this is uh, one of the things that I would keep seeing people fall into. Even if they had indexes, a seemingly innocent change to the query could cause you to stop being able to make use of the index and cause you to do full table scans. That meant that in big organizations where the survivability of the application matters, then pushing to production would be a two-week process in which one of the things that they did was, okay, I, I want to have a DBA go and watch every single query this, database, this application makes to the database to verify that it has the right performance characteristics. With revenue under the same scenario, revenue is going to say, okay, I don't have an index for that. So the first thing that we did was throw an error. You must have an index for this query. Then one of our users got really upset with me about it and told me, I really hate this feature. I told him, I agree. I just can't think of anything else. And he said, what happened if you created the index yourself? And I said, you can do that. And we argued about this for a while. And eventually I told him, okay, you know what? Show me the code. One of the advantages of being an open source project is that I get to do that, and I did that fully expecting never to hear from it again, never, never to hear from him again. And 24 hours later, he came back and says, okay, here is something. He basically, he basically implemented a feature. His name is Rob Ashton. He's a superb developer. And uh, he implemented in RevenB the ability to dynamically generate indexes on the fly. Now, that was 10 years ago. We have used this as a core feature of RevenB ever since and made it a lot smarter. So now what happened is that the more that you query RevenDB, the more information it has about what you need and the better it is, is able to tailor itself to your needs. So for example, when you're building, uh, when you're running uh, queries, it's going to gather all of this information in order to, in order to give you the, the, the appropriate set of indexes that cover all of the uh, fields that you care about and discard anything that you don't need to. Very similar to what you, what you would do if you have a full-time DBA watching all of the queries, except that this happens automatically and you don't need to wait too much for that. 
What I find amazing is that, uh, you know, when, when most developers were faced with the performance issues that you were, you know, they would be looking at you know, fixing the queries or implementing some sort of a caching system. Your choice was, let's rewrite the database. Mm-hmm. Quibble about the word choice. I don't think that we had a, a choice <laughs> in the matter. I mean, seriously, it was really annoying. I did not want to do that at first. But uh, I think that the, the difference here is that uh, if you build an application and you have a slow query, you would fix it. You would create the index, you would add some caching, and you would move on to the next issue. What I did for quite a bit of time was go from copying and copying and just deal with those problems. Now, I mentioned those issues regarding to performance, but I was once at a company where a they had hired the DBA to improve a particular query. And that DBA, uh, the query started being 45 uh, seconds. After the DBA finished working with that, it dropped down to 20 seconds. Now, this was something that a user clicking on a button. The problem with that was that the user wanted to click on, the, on this sort of button a lot, and the latency was just impossible. I sat on that and I spent two weeks and got it down to five milliseconds, not by going to the database. I did that by saying, okay, that was some sort of tree structure. So instead of going to the tree stable, you're going to go to the tree service and you're going to query that. And in order to be able to perform the way that they needed to, any change has to go to the tree service. What ended up happening was that I had an in-memory model which is basically a bunch of dictionaries that did all of the work. So instead of having to do lots of expensive queries, I could usually just do a bunch of lookups and give you all of the results immediately. I remember coming back from that and saying that that's just the wrong choice. They knew that it was the wrong choice, but uh, in some cases to come and suggest, oh, I need a different, totally different tool for the job is not something that you can do and be taken seriously. Obviously, the data has to reside in the database. Obviously, a relational database is the thing that we use. Yeah, there are problems, they are known, let's go and fix them. But when you start seeing that over and over and over again, you start seeing the commonalities, you get tired of writing the same reports over and over. Here is where you need to fix that, this this is where you need to fix this, or you need to rethink these business process because there is no way that you can implement it properly in the database, move it somewhere else. From a lot of those things, okay, it was a dream, literally. I, I just couldn't get it out of my head. That, and honestly, looking back, being a database is a huge undertaking, especially when you consider all of the things that you don't really think about, but you need. You need backup. You need to be able to have a... a UI for administration, you need to think about uh, how you're going to handle data distribution, how you're going to handle a scale-up, and all all of those things are interesting, but they take a huge amount of time. Yeah, I honestly don't even know where you'd start to build a database, like, um, from scratch. So you're saying um, RavenDB is built, it's it's now built in .NET Core, is it? Um, Yes. and And you guys chose that for performance considerations. Not so much. So uh, RevDB was always written in C-sharp. We run a .NET framework for obvious reasons. We try moving to Mono a bunch of times, but I 
models quality really make the uh, start difference to the quality of .NET and .NET Core because we could not make it work in just mm-hmm. entirely. Not because of a potting effort, because just the mono runtime just couldn't uh, survive under what we needed it to do. And uh, one of the things that we really wanted to get out of this porting effort was to be able to run on Linux, because up until that point, we were limited to only running on Windows. What we did was we, we were five, six years into RevenDB in production at that point. We knew what the problems were. We went, ahead, we went and uh, looked at the most common support issues that we had, and they range from, oh, you're using too much CPU to what happened when the disk is slow to a whole saga about figuring out why a particular user isn't able to authenticate to RevenDB. We basically broke it down into, okay, here is how we're going to rebuild the whole team. Here is how we're going to address any of those issues. One of the code, one of the most common problems that we ran into was that if you had a high CPU in RevenDB, in most cases, so when RevenDB has a high CPU, when RevenDB 3.x has high CPU, in most cases, the, the problem was in the GC. Are, and if you consider a typical uh, .NET application, it makes sense. If you have lots of queries, you generate lots of garbage, and something needs to clean it up. With the four edition, we said, okay, I want to go into the native heap for as much as possible. For example, RevenDB stores JSON documents. Those JSON documents uh, in the 3X version were stored as strings. If I wanted to do something with them, I would I would need to I would need to materialize them into a .NET object, and then I would need to do something then stream the results back to the client. The problem with doing that is that this generates huge amount of garbage. With Foro, we are storing the documents using a format that we call Blitable, and the main reason they exist, the main reason that the doc- this is that I don't need to do any parsing in order to work with the data. So I'm able to go to the storage, get basically a pointer to a byte array, be able to do all of the things that I want to do directly on top of this byte array without doing any allocations. We wrote our own storage engine to take advantage of that, which means that I can memory map a, a file, and when you say, give me a, give me a document, what actually happened behind the scenes is that I have to do a lookup to find where is that document uh, located, and I get a pointer to a memory map file, and then I basically can just stream that data directly to the to the network, which means that the I don't need to do a, a, a additional copies, I don't generate any managed allocations, everything just happened very easily and cheaply for me. We've done quite a lot of things of this nature in order to improve the overall performance. It turns out, it turns out that in terms of performance, choosing the core was a really great choice for a whole bunch of reasons, but I think that the most important one was that the dotted core being an open source project means that there are a lot of people who are impacted by a very small performance issues. In the past, if I was using the .NET Core and I had a problem with the method, 
I could go ahead and try to open a, a support call with Microsoft. That support call would, at best, get an answer within 18 to 24 months. Today, I can go and make a change and submit a PR. In most cases, that PR is going to be accepted. Now, multiple me by the entire .NET ecosystem, you have a lot of people who are chipping away at all of those problems. I can tell you just, we recently moved from .NET Core 2.2 to .NET Core 3.1, and we saw about 25% reduction in CPU just from this move. Mm. If you have lots of people, each one of them adding, let's reduce the performance in 1% here, 2% there, it adds up to a really substantive saving over time. And I'm really happy about that. So do you guys have like a big um, community of developers that are, that are submitting PRs and is it? And are they mainly from companies or? We have users who submit PR. I think that at last count, uh, we had something like 200 to 250 contributors over the lifetime of the project. But we're treating this as a commercial project, which means that currently there are about 30 developers who are paid to work on that full-time. Mm. Sometimes we say, okay, can you send me a PR for that? But most cases it would be, okay, we'll put it on the backlog and we get to that. For most things, I think we get to that in a reasonable amount of time frame. So, I mean, I don't actually know how you would even design a database, but like these PRs, like would it, because, you know, like normally when you submit a PR, you'd, you'd write a bunch of unit tests and it would kind of validate that you, that's what you're doing. But um, how would you submit a PR to make a change to a database? Like would there be a lot of testing that's required, like performance testing? Let's, let's do it once a time. What is a database? A database is just a network service that store data and allow you to retrieve it. That's all. Now, the simplest database that you can imagine would just be, okay, here is a key value store. Yeah. And the backend of that would be a concurrent dictionary. And you should be able to write that within an hour or two. And that would just work. Now, the next stage that you have to consider, okay, what happened when I want to make this persistent? Persistent databases are a lot harder, but they aren't that much more complex. There is a wonderful book uh, that recently came out. It is called Database Internals. Uh, it's from O'Reilly by Alex Petrov, and it's an excellent discussion of uh, the internal structures of uh, databases. The key issue that you have with databases is that, uh, first of all, you have to decide whatever you want to be transactional or not. If you don't want to be transactional, things are a lot simpler. For example, Redis is not transactional. Uh, MongoDB for a very long time was not transactional. And it helps because it simplifies quite a lot of your uh, setup. So let's assume that you don't need to be transactional and you want to store some data. If you can, and again, let's say that you're using a key value uh, mode, and uh, the key is limited to, let's say, 32 bytes, and the value is whatever you want. So a very simple system for doing that would be to say, okay, I'm going to just write a value to a file and maintain a dictionary in memory for a, a, that points to where that value is located in the file system. Now, I'm trying to remember, uh, I want to say React had this model, but I don't think that this is correct. But uh, anyway, that's simple. 
But then you have to deal with updates. Then you have to deal, deal with how you restart and all much of other stuff like that, none of which are independently complex. Those are just details. Yeah. And the moment that you have persistence handle, persistency handle, then you're halfway there almost. The other side is that you typically need something better than a key value store. You want to have indexes, you want to have complex data structure, all sorts of stuff like that. Mm. This is where you get into well-known algorithms, and this has been a very well-trodden piece of computer science history. So there's a lot of materials. After a while, they even start to make sense. uh, The good thing here is that there are a lot of databases here that are open source, and you can go and look in into how they are built and how they operate and understand them. The downside here is that there there is mental model of how things work and there is the actual implementation. And in many cases, they are wildly different from one another. And the reason for that is that uh, the mental model doesn't have good performance characteristics unless you do some non-trivial things to make it work. But again, those are just Details, sometimes a lot of details, but detailed work that you need to handle. Okay, cool. So uh, somebody that's just getting started and, and wanted to find out about RavenDB, what kind of things do they need, do they need to know and understand when they're first you know, dealing with RavenDB? First thing to look at is there is a demo.ravendb.net. You can go there and look some code samples. There is also a book that is available on the website. And that guys that walks you through all of the details around all of the details that you need to build RavenDB. But you can go and get a free cloud instance and start working uh, with the API within a few minutes. And the first thing that I would probably suggest to people just do a basic CRUD, do it to do up, and see how it works. The nice thing about that is that. Uh, you should be able to write a to-do application or do quite a lot without really understanding anything about what's going on with RavenDB behind the scenes, just from looking at the API. One of the things that we have tried to do with the API is make it as obvious as possible. The common entry point into the uh, into RavenDB is the session API, and that one has six methods, which is basically the CRUD operations. Store, delete, query, uh, load, and then you have save changes which actually go to the database and save all of the modifications. That's the first thing to do. The second thing is to understand what's actually is happening in RevenB that is distinct from what would happen within a relational database. The fact that you don't need to define indexes or you don't need to define tables is, uh, is key here. The fact that you can store arbitrarily complex data Try to imagine the fact that as you modify your entities, the database just accept the new uh, definition and move on, and you don't really have to worry about things. Modeling is something that you probably want to understand before you build real-world applications. If you have a good grasp of domain-driven design, that should just trust it naturally. A document is the root entity, and the rest is just the same. Interesting enough, uh, a lot of the use cases for RevenDB happen in uh, distributed scenarios. When talking about distributed, I'm not talking about, oh, you have a cluster of machines that are working together. I'm talking about, oh, you have one of our customers is, uh, is using us for a tax preparation software. 
and they're deployed to 50,000 locations. That means that uh, whenever, so now you have a whole different scale of problems with how do I push data to all of those locations. So the IRS changed some rules that needs to be updated or the other way around, or I just finished doing my taxes, I need to push it to send it over. And Remedy has a really good system for synchronizing across wide number of instances to all sync up to a single a, a result. Another example that you would want to understand when you get started is what's the right structure to approach. And it's very similar to how you model, but not quite. How do you build a, an application that uses RevenDB? Here's a good example. I'm not explaining this properly because I have too many things trying to get out of the same mm. at the same time. Here's a good example. Let's say that uh, as a customer page, you want to show how many orders does this customer have. So the way to answer that is query on customer, group by customer name, give me the uh, number of orders. And you can express this natively in RevenDB as you would uh, be able to do in a relational database. The difference here is that this is an aggregation, aggregation query, which RevenDB has specific support for. So with RevenDB, you would do this query directly inside the controller and just throw it to the user. In a relational database, you would typically need to do that as a daily or weekly report because the cost of doing aggregation query over the entire data set is too high. With RevenDB, we already do all of those things for you in order to handle that. I mentioned earlier that initially the performance of revenue was never an issue. And the reason for that is in general, it's applied in a general fashion. Databases typically deployed as network services, which means that you all, if you want to hit them, you always have to go over the network. If you have to go over the network, it means that you have to deal with the fallacies of distributed computing. And selected plus one, the primary reason this is so expensive is because you have to go over the network every time that you make additional query. One of the things that RevenDB did uh, very early on was consider these fallacies and gave answers to that. So for example, with RevenDB, you have something called lazy queries. Lazy queries allows you to make multiple queries to the database at in the same round trip. So if I need to know how many orders does this customer have, what are their detail and give me the uh, past five orders that they had, I can do it in one route to the server. And in most cases, these queries are going to be fast enough that the performance is going to be dominated by the number of time you go to the server. There are other features related to working with related data. So let's say that I need to uh, say, okay, I want to get the most recent orders for this customer and I also want to show the name of the employee that handled this that handled this order. So the typical way to handle that would be in a relational database to do a join, which opens you up to quotation product, which complicates the execution plan, stuff like that. RevenDB has a feature called includes, which allows you to do just that. It says, oh, when you fetch in those results, also fetch me the uh, related employee. It doesn't modify the structure of the result, it doesn't have an impact on the query plan or the execution time. It makes things a lot simpler. So just exploring those 
four steps. So uh, just being able to just work with the data and not have to think about, oh, I have to prepare things and I have to do things uh, upfront in order to make some changes to the database, that's huge. Being able to do aggregation queries, uh, lazy queries and includes, those, those would be the things that I would say go at them first and you, you will get the most bang, bang for the buck in the shorter amount of time possible. So, so things like you know customers and orders, those are separate documents, but there's mm-hmm. some sort of a way, you know, some sort of a key, foreign key relationship. There Analog, is, not the, not exactly the same thing, but probably some something similar yeah. that allows you to connect them. There is literally a property on the orders that say here is the customer ID. That's it. Now, this is not a foreign key because RevenueB was designed to be distributed, which means that. You can't actually have phone keys in this database because what happens if I'm saving a customer in one transaction to node A, but saving the order for that transaction in a separate transaction to node B? If the node A haven't had a time to tell you about a, the new order, the new customer for this order, then you would fail the operation because of the phone key mismatch. And in the same, in the same sense, if I deleted the customer from node A, but haven't had a time to delete it from node B, and now I create the order on node B, then when the delete command comes from the other node, that's going to cause me issues. So RevenueB uses the multi-master replication model, in which case you can make modification to any node in the cluster. In that case, phone keys aren't possible. But practically speaking, yes, you have a property that says, here is the related document ID. And you just you can just traverse that. Revenue even have graph queries, so you can do much more complex traversal of the data without having to really think about that. So then, wouldn't it be possible to make an order with an invalid customer ID? Absolutely possible. Yes. Yeah. So then that would just be handled on the app level, would it? Is that what the? Yes. There are other issues here that you have to consider. In general, you don't do deletes in business applications unless we're talking about some really strange cases. If you have a customer, you're always going to have this customer. Mm. Even if you have to deal with something like the GDPR or the California privacy rules, you can't delete a customer because they pay me money, I have to report it on my taxes, I need to show what they bought, a bunch of stuff like that. Maybe I would need to to mask some details, some information about this customer, but that's about it. And from practice, the ability to work with each node independently is a huge bonus for the system because it means that uh, if there is network connectivity issue, if some of the nodes in the cluster have failed, I'm still up and running. It does complicate some of the distribute mechanics that we have to deal with because it is possible for you to have two rights to the same document happen at the same time to different nodes. And both nodes would accept these rights and then send updates to each other. At which point we have a conflict and there is a conflict resolution mechanism that uh, is invoked at this point to make sure that everything happens properly. If you're familiar with the Dynamo paper from Amazon from 2006, I think, they talked about how they handled that. And the basic idea is that Amazon shopping cart is one of the most important properties that they have. This is how they make money after all. They have to deal with failure mode uh, all the time. So they had a very simple rule. 
no software issue should cause a user to lose stuff from their shopping cart. And the way that they did that, they did it with Multimaster uh, Data Store. If they detected the conflict, it was the responsibility of the application to fix that. In this case, let's say that you have one node that says uh, the shopping cart contains milk. The other node says uh, bring milk and bread. Then you can just merge that and say, oh, the final result would be milk and bread in my shopping cart. Uh, Revenue allows you to define policies to handle that. So you don't need to handle that at the application level. You can handle that at the database level and you can modify it uh, by the administrator as time goes by. That makes things a lot simpler in general because from the application developer point of view, okay, I just throw data into RevenueDB and it gets managed. I guess my main experience is, has been with relational, but I've actually um, used a few um, NoSQL databases for a couple of projects. Like I've used um, Firestore um, Fire, um, and MongoDB. One of the pitfalls I've, I've found is, um, I guess I'm touching on when, when you were talking about structuring, um, is I guess deciding um, what should become a document, um, which, and which entity should become a document, and which, which should sit inside it. So, for example, like if your customer and order example. So, do I make the customer and the order both a, um, a, a like a like a document type, or do I make the you know, order sit inside the customers? And I feel like um, it, that's one of the things that, that are really hard for me because I'm, I don't know whether I'm going to query a um, if I'm ever going to query just all the orders all at once, kind of thing. So, are there any tips for how how someone would structure their database? Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing to consider is. What is the reason for change? So a document ideally should have one reason to one reason to change. The other thing is whatever uh, two changes are valid to happen concurrently. So let's talk about the scenario of order and customer. In most systems, you have you have multiple orders for a customer. So it makes sense that uh, what you're going to have. You're going to have a customer document and an order document, an order documents for each order. Does it make sense that I want to say, okay, this customer just got upgraded to the premium uh, level, while I set the shipping charges on the order to be something else? Does it make sense for both of them to happen at the same time? Are they independent entities or are they together? It might be easier to consider something uh, that isn't valid. So consider an order and order lines, which would typically be separate tables in a relational database. Does it, is it valid for me to add two order lines at the same time? No, it is not, because uh, I may have to compute, or if uh, you buy more than five items, then that means that we have to ship it in multiple packages. So the shipping charge is, is different. That's a good example of saying, oh, there is a business reason for not wanting to modify this concurrently. It has to be serialized. And the serialization unit would be the document itself. I like to, I like to say that the document should be uh, independent, isolated, and coherent. Independent, isolated refers to uh, being able to write it. Do, independent means that can write just one location. Isolated means that I don't have to but have multiple rights going to the same location for different business purposes. And coherent means that I should be able to go and look at a document and make sense of that without having to go and look at uh, additional locations. Something that is really important in terms of modeling 
in a document database is the notion of time as a concept. Consider the case of a customer that has addresses. We, now we want to ship an order to an address. Uh, what happens if the user want to mo- wants to modify their address? In a relational database, would have customers uh, table, addresses table, and orders table. And they would all reference one another. It's very easy for you to get into a position where you say, oh, I need to modify this address, and you send an update statement to this address, at which point you have data corruption because you modified the address of orders that were already shipped, which is not something that you, you should be able to do. In document database, you typically treat address as a value. So the addresses would sit inside the, you have an addresses collection for uh, the customer that would sit inside the customer document. And for each order, you would have a copy of the relevant address that you would deal with. Now, this means on the face of it that you have duplication, but this is duplication of data, not duplication of intent. The order's address and the address of the customer are not the same thing. They may have the same values, mm. but they have different purposes. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so I think those are the, the most important rule of thumb to, to follow. Issues that I've always you know, struggled with with dealing with uh, you know, document-type databases is, is some of the consistency issues. And even, uh, isn't, uh, don't the indexes get updated asynchronously? With RevenDB, the, the documents are updated asynchronously, yes. One of the things that we notice is that uh, in many cases, after you make an update, you don't immediately need the information. So there's no reason for you to wait for that. That is an optional feature that you can turn on or off as you want to. So you can say, okay, I want to add a new, cus- a new order to a customer, and then I want to, sh- to go and look at the... Uh, orders for this customer, and I reasonably expect to see the the new order in. At that point, you can say, oh, I have a right, and I want to wait for the relevant indexes to update before it happens. On the other hand, if I have another background process that says, oh, now I need to mark this order as shipped, I don't, and there is nothing that immediately going to want to look at the list of orders, I don't need to wait for the indexes to ship. To, to be updated to the shipping status on the order. I can just go on and process the next one. So with uh, be the idea here is that we give more option to the user to say, oh, he I care or don't care about that. In some cases, this is uh, too much freedom. And we have users who say, no, I just want to turn that off globally and I want to wait for all of the indexes to complete whenever we have, whenever we have a right. But it's better than the alternative of, oh, now I have to wait for everything every single time. One of the things that uh, is interesting about databases is that how much time you spend actually making sure that things are consistent. There is, there's been a bunch of study on that. The most known one that I have talks about the cost of OLTP systems and about 40% of the time a, a database spends working is spent on managing locks to handle just those sort of scenarios. By reducing the need to do that, we are able to get phenomenal performance improvements. Going back to the, the relational versus, I guess, in RavenDB, would you, would you say that every single relational database um, would, would work better in, in RavenDB or are there certain use cases that you wouldn't recommend um, RavenDB in? 
PrivateB was specifically built to handle business applications. If you have OTP system, PrivateB is going to make your life easier. If you don't have an OTP system, then that depends. One scenario that RevenueB doesn't work well on is if you have to ask lots of different questions. For example, let's say that I have a bunch of data and I need to go explore it. Show me all of the uh, red hair, left-handed dogs that you have here. All bunch of stuff like that. And the next query, show me all of the customers from Chicago that bought perfume in the past six months. You can go and do all of that, and it gives you some uh, some data. Revelby could do those sort of things, but because of the way that we uh, generate indexes, and we assume that you have a set of queries that would be roughly the same across some amount of time. If you're always generating different queries and doing exploratory stuff, then that's not a good uh, that's not a good fit. Uh, Revenue does have an interesting feature related to that, which allows you to say, "Okay, I'm going to configure a connection string inside Revenue and tell it here is my SQL Server, here is my Oracle, and I want Revenue to push data to that location." So Revenue would basically be in charge of syncing up the data that it has in document form, translating that into a relational based on the user, user specification, and syncing up to the uh, relational database. And we have users who are using that for reporting purposes. We have users who are using that for integrating with legacy systems. So they move some part of the system to RevenueB, but the rest is still in a relational database, and they don't have to make a hard cutoff between the versions. Cool. That kind of leads into my next question: Was did you see? Do you see many customers out there that are running kind of a hybrid environment where they've got part of their data and is in a relational, and then part of it's in RavenDB? Yeah. So if you look at typical data architecture in most places, it's gotten to the point where users pretty much have to run multiple data storage systems. It's very typical to see, you um, again, excluding RevenB from the discussion for a second, uh, you'd have Mongo for storing some data, relational for reports, and Elastic for search. Now, one of the things that we uh, come and says, oh, uh, we can replace all three of them. You have fixed reports, we can uh, handle that using aggregation MapReduce very, very easily and cheaply. If you have a stored data, well, obviously that's the core of what you do. And for searches, we have full text search and Lucene backend for uh, the indexes, so you can do all of the things that you do with uh, Elastic very well. But I don't think that you will run into monotheistic almost projects anymore. In most of them, you've seen multiple persistent technologies, especially when we are talking about microservice architecture, one of the major benefits that we have there is the ability to choose the best fit for the scenario that you have for that particular service. It does complicate some of the operational overhead if you need to support multiple systems in production, but it means that you don't have to go for the least common denominator. So how does RavenDB compare to other uh, NoSQL uh, databases like, you know, MongoDB or Cosmos? It tends to be faster. In some, some cases, it tends to be much, much faster. 
compared to Mongo, RMB has been transaction since day one. And that means that we spent the past decade improving our transaction, our transaction performance. With RMB, you can have transaction that is specific to a single node or across the entire cluster. MongoDB got transactions only very recently, and the marketing material says that there is a performance impact on that. I would leave the rest to your imagination. In terms of operational complexity, RevenDB's query language is RQL, which is very similar to SQL. It, uh, you can, look, something truly simple. I want to uppercase the false name of all of my users. Go ahead and do that. You can do that in one query in RevenDB, and this is not possible to do in Mongo because they don't have pair, uh, uh, don't have the ability to make mutation on a pair document basis when you do a update menu operation. There's a whole bunch of stuff like that. Uh, aggregation in MongoDB typically is much, much more costly because they have to scan the entire things and we're able to just provide information directly. Compared to Cosmos, Cosmos is... I'm, I'm trying to think about a nice way to say that. There are a lot of stuff that are missing that you'd consider to be basics. Uh, I think that until recently, they didn't have order by and the ability to follow up references or the ability to query across multiple documents and get a meaningful result. I want to see how many orders and what is the total sum of orders that I have per customer. That's something that you just can't do in Cosmos. Again, one of the things that we spent a lot of time on is looking at business application scenarios. This is our bread and butter. And we have tried very hard to be able to provide exact features for those things that make the developer's life easier, make the administrator life easier over time. Another thing that I want to touch, the deployment cost and complexity is hugely different. Going from nothing to RevenDB properly set up takes you about 10 minutes. I actually have a video on YouTube that I will walk through setting up a cluster of RevenDB on three separate nodes and connecting all of them and including security and everything. And that's the time that it takes. If you look at the setup procedures for other databases, they tend to be far more involved, far more complex. And if you start talking about, okay, is this thing that just did applicable for production employment? The answer is no, because you have to do a whole bunch of other steps in order to get there. Recently, there has been a leak from Microsoft of 250 million records of support tickets. And that happened because someone left Elastic nodes accessible to the internet with no password. This is something that you literally can't do with RevenDB. RevenDB will absolutely refuse to run in a secure mode if it connects to anything but localhost. That's because we have seen over and over that that is a bad idea capitals included, to do something like that, but people still do it. And at some point, once you've passed the 10,000 person who does that, it's not being a user's fault and should be on the vendor to make sure that this is very, very hard to happen. And uh, RavenDB is available in Azure, isn't that right? Yeah. You can go yep. to cloud.revendb.net and we're available on Azure, AWS, and GCP. Okay. And looking at the uh, RavenDB website, it looks like there is a, a free community edition for people that want to get started, right? Mm-hmm. And then after that, depending on the features you need, it's per core. 
Mm-hmm. How would somebody have a good idea of how many cores that they would need for RavenDB? Experience, just try it. There is a, a develop edition that gives you a lot more core that you can uh, play with, which is also free. But in general, rule of thumb is for every 100 to 200 uh, requests per second that you want, you want one or two core. Uh, you typically want to have a minimum of two per node to allow for a background work to also happen, but that would be the rough of it. Now, again, I'm running a system that are much bigger than that on low hardware. I have a four-core four, four core machine that is handling thousands of requests per second, but what we found was that suggesting to users that, oh, running on 50% CPU on a cost basis is fine, tends to give the ops team some uh, ticks, so they want to have a lot more buffer for to be able to sleep at night. But yeah, it's basically you have to experiment a little bit with your scenario and see what's going on. Something that I found really frustrating is that in many cases, users don't know, okay, how many queries do you have per second? How many queries do you have per day? And the answer is lots. And it can be lots mean... 2 million queries a day, or it can be 500 queries a day, a day, not not anything more than that. And I guess it could be inconsistent it, as well, wouldn't it? Because you might be a, have an application where maybe only one time a week it's it spikes, and then and yeah. most times it's not. So we have a we have a customer who is doing conference management at 8:59 a.m. There is no traffic on the system. Hmm. At 9.02, they show a big, uh, uh, the, the, all of the screens. Go into the application, click on this button to win some raffle, and suddenly you hit with 10,000 queries within the span of five seconds. Mm. And you need, to deal, you need to deal with that. And you don't need to deal with that by, oh, let's get a 96-core beast. Mm. RevenB can handle, again, 1,000 writes per second on Raspberry Pi which is four core and one or two gigabyte of memory. So can you set up RavenDB in like an active-passive type situation? You could. It's strange that you want to do that, but yeah, the typical way that you would do that. Okay, so... Usually that's just so people can save on licensing if they can only pay for the active, but still have a failover option. It's a bit more complex that uh, you would pay for, in terms of license, you would pay either way. So it doesn't matter in this case. Okay. The, typi- the typical deployment for production would be three nodes in the cluster. All of them would be uh, equal members. If one of them goes down, then there is transparent follow between them. And if two of them go down, then the cluster goes into a freeze. They can't make any sort of decision without a majority. The databases that are available still able to do read and write properly. And it's also fun when you, okay, I have a crisis, two of my nodes are down, and everything still works to given value of fun. You can run RevenDB in a, is a two independent nodes that replicate to one another. It's also common to have a cluster and a separate node a, as part of disaster recovery scheme. So I have three nodes in a London, and I have one node in Amsterdam. That node is only there to uh, have an off-site replica of the data. Okay. So it sounds like kind of the recommended minimum is like three nodes, two core per node. Mm-hmm. So that's a kind of good, good starting place for you know, a, a good 
business application, it sounds like. Yeah. yeah. Again, the question is also whatever you actually need distribution. If you have a single web node to process data, you have no need for availability probably. You can run on a single node and that would be it. It's very common in those cases to run the web and the database on the same server anyway. If the server is down, you're down anyway effectively. Even if you know the data is external, the, the users see no application uh, visible. That's the same as if you had any other fa- a total failure. At that point, you have to consider whatever it makes sense to run on multiple nodes or not. Sometimes in terms of data survivability, you want to have multiple copies, absolutely. But there's a lot of gradients here that you have to take into account. I think we're uh, about out of time, so I think we should probably move on to doing picks for this week. I guess I will go first, and my pick this week is for anybody out there that's looking to get in and have a a .NET job. Uh, There's a new um, job announcement site out there that I found. It's called .NET. Dot careers. So if you want to go to the uh, the website dot net dot net period careers, it's uh, it's got a, a good start. I think it'll be helpful. A lot of people that are, are looking for jobs and want to get into doing dot net development. Are they like are they main geographically located? Um, or are they mainly like are they remote jobs? You think or? Uh, it's got a little bit of everything. I think really in there. So cool. And it, it's it's building. So as more people learn about it, um, I think there'll be more job postings as the companies know about it too. Mm. It's not. I don't know the person. I just came upon it uh, one day. I'm, I have no affiliation with it, but <laughs> it looked like a, an interesting interesting site. It's got a community uh, section on it. They've also, I think, going to start putting like common uh, interview questions on there. So it'll be helpful to a lot of people. So what's your pick? Why? Um, so this week, my pick is um, on a show on Amazon Prime called um, Modern Love. So um, it's basically a, a, it's a show that every week is, it's tells a different story about someone in, in I think, New York. And I, I just really like it just because um, like so many shows these days, they're kind of like chronological and kind of you kind of have to start from one and um, this, um, watch it through to the end. But this one, you can just pick up whatever you want. It's a different story every week. So... Um, yeah, it's, it's pretty good. It's only, it's only got one season now, though, so maybe more later. Hopefully. All right. So, Warren, don't know if you're familiar with picks, but it could be technical. It could be just anything you're interested in today so you want to let, let people know about. I mentioned the Database Intelligence book earlier. The other one... Yeah, I put I that in the show notes. Yep. I would also recommend uh, Designing Database Intensive Applications. This one is by Martin Kletman. I hope I pronounced that right. And that's also a pretty good discussion. It talks about databases from the other side. So from the point of view of someone who wants to use it and database intelligence from someone who is implementing the databases, but both do a really good job of uh, serving the uh, database landscape and modern research on that. Okay. Well, thanks, Warren, for uh, taking some time out of your day. We really appreciate it. I yeah, think, uh, yeah, RavenDB, I think, sounds like a good option for people that are looking out there for um, something that really is kind of built around .NET, has good performance, and uh, you know, wants to have a NoSQL option, and they're not satisfied with some of the other ones that are out there for them. So definitely check out uh, RavenDB.net and see if it works for you. 
if people want to get in touch with you or reach out, have questions, is there a good way? Yeah. Oren, O-R-E-N, at revenue.net. Awesome. And I think you have a pretty good website or blog is what I'm actually trying to say there. So I looked at your blog. It looked like it had got a lot of good information there too. So check that Thank out. You. And if Thank I'm you. Thank you. That's for 16 years. 16 years? Oh, yeah. Well, for... Not 20, huh? No, I... <laughs> I count my start as a software developer since 99, but I only started writing the blog in 2004. Mm, yeah, I, that, I think that's about the time when there actually was a thing known as a blog. So Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And if anybody wants to get a hold of the show and reach out to me, they can get me on Twitter. It's at .NET Superhero. Thanks, everybody. It's a great show. We'll catch everybody on the next episode of Adventures in .NET. Cheers.